If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 1960s, the post-war establishment on both sides of the Atlantic was challenged by a youth movement that questioned attitudes on everything from sexual liberation and racial equality to recreational drugs and the Vietnam War. The 60s was a tumultuous period in the West's modern cultural history, one that produced riots, protests and some truly unforgettable music. For today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizzen sat down with Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester, to delve into 60s counterculture. Alwyn, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Arwen, I'm going to start with a question that appears at the very top of the list of popular search engine queries. And that is, what was the 60s counterculture? Can you give us a, a brief introduction to this youth culture phenomenon? I think the first place to start is, this is a term that was not used during the 1960s. It's it's a, a later coinage. It comes at the beginning of the 1970s, and so it's applied retrospectively to a phenomenon that is already on the wane. And therefore, there's not a really clear set of boundaries that were determined by the people who were active at the time. So to some extent, it's, 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 it's a, an amorphous term. It's part of, I guess, what was a, a, a worldwide phenomenon in the 1960s, um, a, a reaction against traditional authority, essentially. And that ranged from everything, uh, right across the spectrum, from uh, new theories on mental health through to new fashions in clothing. It could apply to anything. Within that big, broad movement, the counterculture is primarily about a tendency that is characterised by attitudes towards drugs, uh, sex, music, uh, communal living. There is a, a, and it emerges out of popular culture. 
So it's 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 a, a a part of a much larger thing, but it is associated primarily when we talk about the counterculture, we're talking about hippies, about psychedelic music, about ideas of free love, that kind of thing. Now it's called the sixties counterculture. I mean, what is what is the date range of this phenomenon? I mean, are, are we talking nineteen? 19- 60 to 1969 or is it harder to define than that I, I think it really becomes a very clear phenomenon by about 1964-65 it's not there quite at the beginning but it obviously it grows out of what's already there these things don't just emerge spontaneously the the the, the roots are clear uh, I mean right the way th- through the 1950s you can see things you can see um, it was 1954 that Aldous Huxley wrote his book, The Doors of Perception, about his his experimenting on himself with mescaline, um, and that's that's where the uh, the American group, The Doors, took their name from. In, in you know, ten years later, so there is an influence that comes through from the 1950s, from uh, the beatnik culture that existed then, from things move. Movements like uh, CND in Britain, civil rights in America, these things were already entrenched by the end of the 1950s, and they grow into what becomes the, the, the counterculture of the 60s. Actually, can we explore that in a little bit more detail? Because um, my next question comes from someone describing themselves as the golden from golden on Instagram, and that is, how did 1950s culture shape and impact the 1960s counterculture. Now, I know we're going to talk about specific geopolitical events that drove the counterculture, such as the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, a bit later on. But what was it about the makeup of post-war society that the counterculture was, was railing against? I think you can go back even before the 50s, to be honest. I think it's the Second World War is such a seismic event. And... It shows to many people that the established order right across the world has failed. It has presided over these two massive conflicts in the two world wars. Hundreds of millions of people are dead. Um, We've seen the death camps in, in Germany. We've seen the use of the atomic bomb. There is a feeling that the way that the world has emerged, how it is organized, the power structures have lost all moral authority. They have failed. And so there's a rebellion against that. And it starts in fairly small terms. I mean, this is why the 1960s is is what it's associated with, because that's when it becomes a mass movement. But there are the tendencies are clearly there in the 1950s. The emergence of of the beatniks are essentially a a group of American writers, but calling for a kind of a a return to an older version of America, a, a more primitive version before technology has become quite so destructive. That's, that's, that's an important part of what will become known as the counterculture, but it's already in place by the, the early and mid-1950s. So there is a, a very big hangover, um, no, more than a hangover. It's an organic growth from that into, um, in, into what we call the counterculture. And you spoke earlier about the, the rise of CND in, in Britain. I mean, how did that play into, into the rise of the counterculture? CND um, was a very large movement. It tended to be a mostly uh, educated middle class movement, but it, it was associated with music. 
it, it, it associated itself with the trad jazz revival of the 1950s, um, to some extent with Skiffle. So it had a, it was a political movement that was against all established parties, because of course it was it was the Labour Party that initiated Britain's atomic program. Um, although it was a conservative government by the, 19, the, the the time of CND, and so it's, it's political, but it does have a cultural dimension, and I think that's important as well as as in defining what the counterculture will become. It is that blend of politics and culture. Sure. Now, here's a question from Hannah Laura Ridgely, uh, which was also submitted on Instagram. And that is, where did the term hippie originate? Well, that, that is a beatnik expression. Um, originally, it was hipster. Uh, as, as somebody who is very cool and, uh, and switched on and they were hipsters. And then that becomes transmuted down into hippies. So it's, 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 it is one, one of the kind of the concrete uh, examples of how the 1950s shaped the 1960s. It is, a, a say, rooted in a 1950s cultural term. Sure. And if a single worldview or political aspiration united what we now call the hippies, I mean, what is it? Is it, is it possible to, to define? Um, I guess it is, it's about that re- rejection of established authority and tradition it's it's difficult to get much more specific than that because because th- th- this is such an amorphous movement it's so vague at times that there are elements of so many political creeds jumbled up in it there, there, there there's anarchy and there's liberalism there's socialism there's there's maoism there's black power in america all jumbled up without any kind of coherent logic. And into that mix is also then thrown a, a, a heap of equally mixed up and, and jumbled fragments of, of religion, particularly of Eastern religion, bits of, of Hinduism and Buddhism, but not in any way that um, a conventional Hindu or Buddhist would understand uh, or recognise. So the whole thing is is, is this this big melting pot of, of, of ideas and people are taking whichever bits they want from that. This is, it's a grab bag, to use another metaphor. People are, are, are just extracting elements, recombining them, and there is no great coherence to it, except that none of it relates to um, what it would be seen as the traditional Western values and, and systems. Okay, another uh, very popular query which is submitted on the internet search engines is how did the Vietnam War influence the counterculture? So I wonder if you could answer that question and also maybe discuss some of the other significant political and social issues that really fired up young people in the 1960s. The Vietnam War is is absolutely central to this. Um, The counterculture is primarily associated with America. Yeah. And America has conscription. And so young men know that they are going to be drafted to go and fight in this war, which is seen by this stage as an imperialist war, and imperialism is unfashionable and unacceptable um, because it is part of traditional thinking and, and convention. And because there is a personal risk, you know, you're, you're going to be sent halfway around the world and you may well end up getting killed or seriously injured. Uh, there, there is a very definite existential threat to the individual. And so the the campaign against Vietnam 
becomes the defining feature of of 1960s counterculture and wider than that. I mean, it, it takes in a whole range of, of elements that are beyond the counterculture. And it does inform it. In Britain, that makes much less sense, obviously, because in Britain we do not have an involvement in the, the Vietnam War. There are many people campaigning and um, arguing that the British government of, of Harold Wilson should take a more definite stand against uh, Vietnam, but uh, he does keep us out of the war, and so it's 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 not as pressing. But it still is it's still an issue in Britain in solidarity with America, and it's it is the the, the kind of the the battering ram of, of of the counterculture that is used to attack a whole range of other institutions and established thinkings. And what what other issues were were, were really energising people in in this decade? Obviously, you had the civil rights movement as well. I, I imagine mm. that was a quite a large factor, wasn't it? It is. I mean, largely because the civil rights movement had included so many volunteers, people going on voter registration drives in the south of America. Um, it had, it was an activist movement. It, it had drawn a lot of people in. It also. Um, expanded the range of black politics in America so that um, the the, uh, the initiatives of Martin Luther King, which had dominated in the late 1950s and early 1960s, starts to splinter into black power movement, into the Nation of Islam, into the Black Panthers. Black people are becoming much more active and they are not part of the counterculture but associated with it. Um, the, 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 these things are working in parallels. That's that's the expression, um, and and they are informing each other to a large extent. The late sixties was marked by a series of a wave of protests and riots. I mean, you, can you talk us through the most significant of those, and and to what extent were they driven by the counterculture? I think what you can see with, if we take just a couple of examples, you can see the difference between America and Britain here. In America, in 1968, the biggest event probably is, is, is in political terms, is the demonstrations outside the uh, the Democratic Party convention in Chicago, uh, which leads to massive police uh, retaliation and the trial of what become known as the Chicago Eight, who are primarily hippies, but also include Bobby Seale, who is one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party. So there is that... That association is seen seen there, and it is a very, very political and very violent time. 1968 in America is also the year that Martin Luther King is assassinated, um, which sparks a wave of riots right across America, killing hundreds of people. I mean, th- these are really big, serious riots. In Britain, the biggest event of, of this, uh, the, this kind of wave of, of demonstrations are a couple of demonstrations outside the American Embassy in Grosvenor Square in London, which again descend into some fighting between demonstrators and the police. But nobody is killed, and there are no big show trials afterwards. It is on a very different scale. And even that is sufficient that it it drives away some of those who had been associated with, with the movement. Um, so the Beatles famously write revolution in response to the Grosvenor Square riots um, and the Rolling Stones write Street Fighting Man. So so that both of which are distancing themselves from, from the violence. It is, it is seen that even that has overstepped the mark. But it is so, so s- small 
by comparison with America. And I think that's 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 a key difference here, that the counterculture is a term that is used to ex- to express different phenomenon. They, they, they come from the same roots to some extent, but the, the stakes are just so much higher in America. Particularly in America, how concerned was the establishment by the counterculture and by the phenomenon of young people turning on, tuning in and dropping out? Was this thing that really, really was perceived as, as a threat by those in authority? In America, certainly, because it is, again, it's, it goes back to Vietnam. If people are burning their draft cards and refusing to be drafted and large numbers of people going north into Canada to escape the draft, this 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 is a very real thing. If you, you cannot prosecute a war unless you have the, the, the support, however tacit, of the population. Um, and people were turning against the Vietnam War and and it was a genuine threat to American foreign policy. Um, in Britain, again, it's on a smaller scale, but but the, there is a, a fear of this, and largely, I think you can. It's a fear of the unknown. It's o- it's okay with left movements who are claiming to be revolutionary socialists. We've known about those for a long time, and the establishment has has ways of dealing with that and knows the size and the scale of the issue. The counterculture is much more difficult because it's new. And so there are um, big prosecutions of the underground press. Um, magazines like Oz, the International Times, these are prosecuted, um, often on obscenity grounds, but clearly political. Um, and there is an attempt to close these things down. And that would suggest a, a certain nervousness on the part of uh, of the authorities, that they, they they don't really know what this is and how they're going to deal with it, but they fear that it might become something dangerous. Sure. Now, my next question comes from Charles Johnson 97 also on Instagram, and he wants to know if the counterculture was mainly the preserve of the affluent middle classes. And Marina, on, also on Instagram, wants to know, were countercultures concentrated in cities or were they found all over? So I, I guess I can kind of bundle these up into one question. And that kind of is, so how much reach did the counterculture have? And was it something that genuinely energised people from all strata of society? I, I don't think there's any doubt that it starts as a middle class phenomenon. And particularly with those uh, amongst those with tertiary education, but even then, there's a certain subtlety to it. In in Britain, it is more associated to start with with the art schools than it is with the universities. And the art schools do tend to take a larger um, working class intake at this stage. And so there's, it is about education as much as anything else. And education is largely a, a middle class preserve. And it is it is certainly focused on cities, and not, not even all cities. I mean, in, in Britain, it is very definitely a London phenomenon for, for some time. But it does start to spread, and one of the ways that it spreads is through the culture. I mean, we, we, we use the expression counterculture, and the cultural bit is as important as the counter. The fact that, the, the, the fact that music in particular, available universally, means that the message does spread, and it does start to move down the social scale a bit. In America... There is still there is a similar divide. Blue collar workers tend to be still going to serve in Vietnam, 
there is much less of a draft resistance amongst the working class in America. So it is, as many social movements and revolutionary movements, it does start with those who have the time and the leisure to pursue alternative options. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Instead of it simply being, we must look after some poor, unfortunate, probably mentally ill men, it becomes, actually, this is a real, a, 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 an equally valid expression of sexuality, of humanity. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now you mentioned music there, and uh, Nick Liz Sanders asks, what role did music play in spreading the new ideologies of this period. And Hannah Mae Sunshine asks, how important was music? So, yeah, can you can you expand on that a little bit, please? Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely essential. It is, without the music, it, it, it simply wouldn't have evolved in, in the same way or anywhere near to the same extent. It requires that the fact that rock music has become the worldwide expression of youth culture by the mid-1960s. This is absolutely crucial to it, and particularly the Beatles are crucial to it. The the, the Beatles embrace um, many of the trappings of the counterculture, and through them that reaches 
people who would otherwise never have experienced it because the Beatles are the biggest cultural event of the of the decade globally. Interestingly, though, the Beatles are not actually a particularly typical counterculture band. The music they play is not. And some of that is because um, they are essentially an art band. They have retired from live performance in 1966, and the counterculture is at its peak in 67, 68 to 69. And counterculture music primarily is about the live experience. It's about the idea that this is a music that unifies the performers on stage and the audience, and it is an interactive music. And it is seen, I guess, by uh, in, in Britain by groups like Pink Floyd with long improvised jams and the equivalent in America with uh, The Grateful Dead. Um, the Beatles never do this. The Beatles don't do extended guitar solos, let alone jam sessions that last for half an hour. They are an art band, but they are big enough that if they say the counterculture is all right, then it's all right. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think the music, apart from that element of promoting and spreading the message, it's about the communality of it. It's about the unifying force. This is the one thing that everybody can agree on. In that big jumble of ideas that ranges from saying the chairman Mao has the has the answers to everything through to... Uh, people who are interested in Hindu ideas of, of reincarnation. The one thing you can come together on is is rock music. Um, that 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 is, along with Vietnam, that is what unifies the the entire movement. What about drugs? What influence do the wider availability of recreational drugs ha- have on the movement? It, it shapes it entirely. Initially, uh, the prevalence of cannabis, but most particularly the emergence of hallucinogenics uh, with the availability of LSD. And it's about experimentation. This is still a a phrase that we use now, Um, particularly politicians who experimented with drugs when they were at university. You think there's not a great deal of experimenting going on there. You knew what it was about. It's recreational. But there was a genuine sense of experimentation. I mentioned Aldous Huxley earlier in in the 1950s, uh, who was consciously using mescaline to see... What, what it did to his brain, how it affected his perceptions of the world. That is very definitely a part of this. It is not simply a recreational use, although obviously that is an, a, a, a big bit of it. It is also the idea that this is what changes our views of what is important in life. And it will open up new vistas, new ideas, and it will take us into new directions. And if you're rebelling against tradition, then you want new experiences you want new ways of seeing things and 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 so it it, it has a there's an almost evangelical nature to it particularly in 64 65 in america when timothy leary is 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 advocating uh, the use of hallucinogenic drugs this is integral to to the counterculture and it's separated to some extent from the political versions that were existing at the time can you just talk about timothy leary for a little bit please because he's, he's a name that comes up quite often when you're looking into the counterculture. I mean, is was he genuinely one of its leaders? Yes, undoubtedly, and and one of the big one of the philosophers of it, if if that's not too grand a term, and it probably isn't. Um, he does 
seriously believe that the use of psychedelic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs, will change the nature of society and in a positive direction. That it it allows our, our, our brains to perceive more than we can do in normal states of being. Yeah. And and that is, as I say, it is evangelical. There, there is a belief that this is this is a new humanity that can emerge from this. Um, and and there were, you know, jokes about uh, spiking the American water supply with acid. Um, that that was intended as 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 a serious concept, not not the the action, but the but the idea that it would it was possible to change how we we structured society. And that we would be better if we used more drugs. Okay, we've, we've very much talked about uh, America and the UK so far, but Luke Gorchi wants to know: um, Did hippie culture affect other parts of the West? And actually, can I add another question to that? I mean, did it cross the Berlin Wall? Did it? Did it in any way play into, for example, the Prague Spring? The counterculture is essentially from how we perceive it is about America and Britain, but it is right across Europe. Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Berlin, West Berlin are big centres of, of counterculture as well. They, they all take different forms in the same way that Britain is, is, the British version is different to the American. Everything takes a certain national form because of different cultural uh, traditions feeding into it. Um, but it is a worldwide phenomenon, or at least a Western worldwide phenomenon. Um, it is seen to some extent in Central America and even into South America, although most South America at this stage is, is um, uh, comprised of fairly repressive regimes. And that, of course, is also true behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, you mentioned the Prague Spring. Czechoslovakia is the one place where it is seen most – but even then it is very small. It is small pockets of people and, and – um, they are receiving it again, largely through the music, um, because you can you can pick up Western radio. Um, Czechoslovakia is near enough to Western Europe to pick up radio stations, apart from the the propaganda stations of the West. It, it, normal ra- normal radio broadcasting is available. The music is heard. The inspiration is there. There are people who wish to be affected by it, um, but it is relatively easy to. To crush. Um, there, there is a campaign in Czechoslovakia um, where the state is enforcing the cutting of hair. Long hair has become associated. Sorry, long hair. Long hair on men has become the great symbol of of the counterculture, um, and that's relatively easily dealt with by uh, getting getting the police to take you off to a barber and get your hair cut. So it. it it, it it is a factor in in, in Czechoslovakia. You can see it with uh, Václav Havel's uh, embrace of of nineteen uh, sixties music, particularly the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed. But um, but it's not it's not a big force within that. And and the Prague Spring is not really generated by the counterculture so much as an awareness that there are things from the West that are positive. But I think it's above the level of counterculture. Would you say there was a dark side to the counterculture? I mean, just to cite one example, you've got um, Charles Manson. I mean, would you say he was a product of the counterculture? And and if so, so to what extent did his activities act as a real reputational damage on the movement? Yes, he is part of the counterculture. He runs a commune in, in the desert in California, um, which is very much 
uh, a countercultural concept, that idea of communal living and, and of having a guru, and he is a guru. He's older than most of these. This is absolutely crucial to the, the counterculture. It's about youth. Manson is not young. He's been around a long while. He's been in jail a long time, but he's, he's an older man. And part of the problem with the counterculture is there is an element of it that is um, captured in the slogan, peace and love, which is essentially naive. It assumes that everyone is going to share in your utopian dream. Um, but it does also leave one open to exploitation by those who aren't very nice, and Charles Manson was not. And he is arrested in December 1969, which seems kind of symbolic because the 60s have the 60s are aware, as, as the decade comes to the close, the 60s are aware that they are a decade. This is a thing. There is a 1960s. And the idea that it ends the last month of the decade sees the arrest of Charles Manson, who will be charged with multiple murders, and who has come out of this world. And he has associations with the music of the time. He's, he's worked with members of the Beach Boys, for example. He's kind of mixed up in, in the, 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 the music world of the time. That seems to me massively symbolic and was seen at the time as being symbolic. And the other, the other thing in, in December 1969, uh, to round off the decade on a, on a, on a bad note, is, is uh, the Rolling Stones concert in, at Altamont in California where uh, they have decided that they should employ the Hells Angels um, as security. They'd used the Hells Angels as security when they played in Hyde Park in London, but the British Hells Angels are a very different beast to the American Hells Angels at this stage. And the American Hells Angels are um, they're effectively a form of organised crime. Um, they, they, they are a, a kind of underground mafia, but because they seem to be rebels and they, they seem to be part of youth culture. They are associated with the counterculture, and they are seen as being fashionable. So the Rolling Stones, who wish to be fashionable, employ them as security guards. There is extreme violence, people are killed, and it is the most notorious concert in rock and roll history. And again, as I say, it's December 1969. It feels like the decade is ending on the most bleak negative note possible and it has come from within the, the counterculture from within youth culture so was there kind of a recognition even at the time that it, it, that, that it was coming to an end and coming to an end with the end of the decade yes i think so it had started to go wrong the previous year really 1968 had had shown the limits of where the counterculture and the, the wider movement beyond that um, how the, the limits of, of how far it was going to get. Because this is essentially a youth explosion, young people are still in a minority. And 1968 saw an older ma majority um, decide to reject this world. So most famously in, in Europe in 1968, there is the, um, the great Paris uprising of, of where the, uh, there's a general strike Workers and students seem to be united, and they are coming together. And this is this is a one of the most serious challenges um, to to a capitalist state in Western Europe there's ever been. Shortly afterwards, there are elections to the French Parliament, and General de Gaulle's party, the right wing party, wins an absolute landslide. Um, the the Prague Spring that you mentioned earlier that is crushed. Um, there is uh, in Britain we have. Um, 
probably the biggest political event in, in mainstream politics is Enoch Powell making his Rivers of Blood speech, which attracts a huge amount of support from the public. In America, Bobby Kennedy is, is, is murdered in America, who is the great, uh, the great liberal hope. And Richard Nixon, the most right-wing president since the war, is elected as president. There is, there is a sense of a, a counter-revolution against the counterculture. And so it's already, it has hit the buffers to some extent. Okay, so N. Kloss, writing on Instagram, wants to know, what did the counterculture achieve? So, I mean, how successfully did it alter the trajectory of late 20th century societies and change people's attitudes to, for example, gender equality and sexual liberation? I think it has an important role to play. It, it, although I'm, I, I was just saying it, it kind of hits the buffers and it, it is suppressed to some extent, it does have a long legacy and it, it has shaped attitudes. If you take um, homosexuality, male homosexuality has been an issue in Britain, a political issue since the 1950s with the Wolfenden Report, the idea that this should be legalised or at least decriminalised. That was going to come to fruition anyway, and it does. In the late 1960s, under the, the, the government of Harold Wilson, male homosexuality is decriminalised. That would have happened with or without the youth culture explosion that was going on around it. What changes it, I think, is attitudes towards what homosexuality means. That this is, from those who are enacting that law, in, uh, introducing that law rather, in, in Parliament, it is... Homosexuality is an unfortunate condition and we shouldn't oppress those who are afflicted by it. The counterculture, largely through the pages of uh, the underground press of, of Oz and IT, is much more positive. It is an embrace of and a celebration of gay culture, gay lifestyles. And so it, it, it changes the nature of this reform. Instead of it simply being we must look after some poor, unfortunate, probably mentally ill men, it becomes, actually, this is a, re, a, a, a an equally valid expression of sexuality, of humanity. And so I think that that's the bit that changes, I think. And that that takes a while to feed through. And to some extent, that's because it's generational. This is coming from youth. But it does have a huge long-term impact and it does make possible things. And it is noticeable that the, 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 the gay liberation movement in Britain adopts uh, the, the, the form of, of the counterculture. It sets up gay news, which is uh, very, very definitely and deliberately in the lineage of Oz and International Times. It is, it is an alternative underground newspaper. It is intended in that tradition. So the, there is a legacy to it there, I think. It does change attitudes. And, yeah, so the, the, the same is true of, of, of sexual equality, of um, race, of, of the environment, as, uh, very, very importantly. I mean, uh, environmentalism is starting to take off in the late 1960s, and obviously it is driven by scientists, but they are finding very few places in the orthodox media who are prepared to listen to what they are saying. The underground press are lapping it up, and they are... They are propagating the message. And so they may not be initiating any of these great changes, but they are the, the, the conduit for how this stuff is spread. Is part of the challenge of any counterculture movement, and 
youth movement, the fact that people grow older and then gradually get more conservative as they age. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is a, a function of humanity, I guess, isn't it? Um, uh, when, when you have the... Uh, when you have the mortgage and, uh, and and you have family commitments and you have to get up in the in the morning to go to work, uh, things start to look different. Um, and uh, beyond that, beyond the trappings of it, there is there there is a, a change in in attitude. When one is young, one is more open to ideas um, and and more more willing to experiment with alternative viewpoints. Um, and to some extent, yes, that was it was going to come to an end, I guess. Um, uh, and the 1970s were were a very different feel, um, and a new generation emerges that is very different. Uh, by the time you get onto the glam rock generation of 1973-74, there is a conscious rejection of politics, whereas half a generation earlier, rock music was all about the politics. And finally, Arwen, I want to end with a, a, a question from uh, the, somebody calling themselves a posse-mater on Instagram. What long-term effects of the counterculture can we still see today? If, if you know, in Britain in 2022, is there a counterculture still out there? And to what extent was that impacted by what went on in the 1960s? I, it, it has become diffused into the mainstream culture, so it is very difficult to tell sometimes where it is because it, it has become to use the cliche of our times, the new normal. But there, there is clearly a massive legacy. Jermaine Greer came out of um, the underground press and her influence on uh, the, the, the feminist revolution has been the biggest change in, in, in our culture in the last 50 years. Um, I think you can see it in America with the, the wave of, of, um, of, of computer entrepreneurs. Um, the whole ethos of, of, of Apple is rooted essentially in the counterculture and the the idea of new ways of doing things that has emerged from it the the uh, environmentalism is important the the uh the fact that we now have such a a, a growing movement towards vegetarianism and veganism that is very much part of the counterculture uh, legacy um it has just permeated into things it it is a genuine revolution i think and although it doesn't achieve what it intended to in the immediate term, as people slightly foolishly and optimistically hoped at the time, that does not negate the fact that it had this this long-term impact. And it, it, it maybe it took 50 years for it fully to, to change the world, but we do now see things in very different ways. And a lot of that is because of what happened in the late 1960s. That was Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 